Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of your intersectionality, and creating change. In 2017, when we first spoke with Jerry Peterson, he had recently moved to Michigan from California, and he was the new executive director for the Ruth Ellis Center. It was a period of adjustment and change for Peterson and the Center. A lot has happened since then. The Center has grown, not only in size, but in the services and programs it offers. As for Jerry Peterson, well, he's no longer California dreaming. He's a Detroiter through and through. Jerry, welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown. You know, back when we talked um, a while back, you you had come here from California, and you said that, you know, like when you were looking at the job and you looked at yourself, your age, you know, who you were, and you're wondering, like, you know, do they really want me? And, you know, was this the right thing? And you felt moved, you know, that that this is where you're supposed to be. How's it feel now? Is it, it sounds to me like it's home. (laughs) It's totally home. It is, it is more than any place I've lived in, in my life. Um, Even where I grew up, this, this feels like home. It, the, just the diversity of experience, of lived experience, of people, is that's that's an environment where I feel alive, where I feel as though I can contribute. When I came, I intended for this, and indeed it will be my last full-time gig, um, employment gig in life. And I wanted this to be my legacy work, where I could take everything that I had ever learned or benefited from and bring it home and and so that I could bring together resources to benefit a really deserving group of young people like the LGBTQ young people, mostly black and brown here at the Ruth Ellis Center. And that is, it's just been the greatest privilege of my life to do that. We also, uh, in over the course of the because it's seven and a half years now I've been here. Wow. Um, Hard to believe it's been that long. Mm-hmm. But in that time, we also were going really, really deep over the last three or four years in terms of equity and what racial equity really means, what it looks like in an organization with the diversity of staff and persons served that we have at the Ruth Ellis Center. And um, I really believe we made some great strides. We have a number of affinity groups functioning and 
and just really a lot of open dialogue that was spurred on certainly by the all of the Black Lives Matter movement activities of this year and the surfacing of white supremacy and really looking carefully at what whiteness means and the negative impacts of whiteness and white supremacy on our culture in general, but then bringing it home and what does that look like to have a white leader at a place like, like Ruth Ellis Center and how do we open dialogue and how do we understand things and what, how do we you know, change the whole dynamic of leadership and do people really have equitable access to become the new leader of this organization when I'm gone? Those mm-hmm. have been really, really important questions. And so I'm kind of running on and on here, but, um, but it has been truly the, the most amazing privilege of my life to be here and to learn from the staff, learn from young people, and to contribute what I can to that process. You know, what, if you had to, if you thought about the guy in California thinking about this particular position and coming here, what do you think is the most surprising thing to you about your personal growth and development? Mm, that's a really great question, Michelle, uh, and one that I haven't thought about. But um, the most surprising thing about my personal, I, I really believe that I didn't understand how much I didn't know when I got mm. here. You know, you get to a certain place in life and you think you've accomplished things and you've worked hard to understand things. I have probably unlearned at least as much as I have learned since I've been here. And, and that was the surprise, that I didn't realize how much I didn't know and didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet that's been a really pleasant surprise. Um, it's been, certainly been challenging at times mm-hmm. because, you know, we're not always open to getting feedback and helping us understand that we just don't quite get something. Um, but I think that that has been, it, it just keeps me, keeps me alive. It keeps me on my toes. It keeps me humble. And recognizing that, that at any given time, all I have is my lived experience and how my perspective has been shaped by that, which is just one, one set of truths. And everyone brings their own truth to the work. The, the, the young people that we're here for, the people on staff, everyone brings their own truth. And, and I think more than ever in my life, I understand that what seemingly contradictory things can both be true at the very same time. And we have to live in that tension uh, mm-hmm. that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a here reality and there's a not yet reality and something we hope for, something we want, something we're striving for, but we can't just live there. We can't live in the past. We have to live in that tension between what it is we intend and what we hope for and what we want and, and the reality that we're in right in this minute. And how do we, how do we hold those things together and live in that tension in a productive way that doesn't uh, kind of drag us down or allow us to drag each other down? You know, when you came, like you knew, I mean, and every, I mean, I've had uh, conversations with people. I was on a an event 
from Georgia earlier, I mean, later last year, and they were watching the story about Ruth Ellis. You know, from getting there, you know, and knowing that it was named after this woman and, you know, reading about her, but do you feel a closeness with her spirit as each year goes by and as you're doing your decision-making? Absolutely, because the core premise here is what benefits these young people. And I feel as though, you know, to the extent that I've heard story after story from people who knew uh, Ruth personally and loved her, um, and I certainly wish that I could have had that experience, but certainly her, she was tenacious in making sure Mm -hmm that the lives of other people were benefited in whatever way possible and, and that, that they were self-determining and that it wasn't about giving them what, what she thought they needed. It was about helping them find and discover things in themselves and what they hoped for and, and what's the next step or how, how could she help them move forward. And, and fundamentally, that has become and still is our guiding principle of all the things that have happened um, and the things, ways that we've been able to expand and provide new services in the last seven years. All of that has been driven by that question, what do young people want and need? And how yeah. do we bring the resources together so that they can have what they want and need and deserve? Mm-hmm. Do you have a moment where you go like it's close to the heart of Ruth? Mm-hmm. Do you know? And when in doubt, you go W W R D. What would Ruth do? You know. What would Ruth do? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and the staff. We we just have learned more and more, and as much as we can about her life. We make sure that as new staff come in, that they that we help them understand. Ruth, to the extent that, that we're able to do that. But Ruth's legacy is still, I really believe, the driving force here. You know, I mean, because I, when I tell you, I found this, and there were people there who had never seen that film. I mean, and I mean, that it's still inspirational, and the things that you talked about, the tenacity, the, the moving forward, the serving the community that they picked up from, you know, and Ruth has not been on this plane for many years, but they were able to see that in her life and doing it. You know, the center, I remember when the center was in that little downstairs place near Six Mile and Woodward, and when right. you got here, you were, um, it moved over on Victor, you were on Victor. I can remember when I was on the board, and it was like, we were like little rats running through a maze to get back to the conference room to have the board meeting. And then you had gone into the other side while you were developing this. Do you ever look back and go like, wow, you know, following that history, now you've got another building, like you said, where your office is in this other building. Do you ever think about how far you've gone, how far it's grown? And does anyone ever go like, well, how much bigger are you going to get? <laughs> well, so yeah, everyone has different views of that. Yes, and I and I reflect with awe and humility. I do not I do not personally take credit for what has happened here. This has been the work of a community that loves and cares for the young people who come here. 
and and the the array of partnerships and all the places that resources have come from truly truly amazes me i mean especially the first renovation at, at 77 victor street when we went into the partnership with henry ford health system um the board allowed me to spend $140,000 to gut 5,000 square feet and and have nothing and mm-hmm. then sit and wait and work through a capital campaign to actually build it out and and we really struggled to to believe that we could actually do it um, but not only did we do it but it it we ended the construction uh, late 2016, 2017, opened full-time with Henry Ford Health System. And within two years, our mortgage, remaining mortgage on that building after the capital campaign is now paid for 100% by rent from Henry Ford Health System. Wow, that's wonderful. So by 2018, we have $0 out of our regular budget based on that initial renovation. But, but again, this isn't me. This is, a, this is a community that loves and is devoted to the well-being of young people. And, and that's something I love so much about Michigan, in spite of all the things that you can say about Michigan that may be challenging. Um, the care and concern and, and a giving community is, is just really such a beautiful thing here. I love it. You know, the other thing that I think that's really wonderful in watching as you've developed is young people coming along with you to where it's not just like about serving young people, but you have young people who have gone on to become staff members who are right. making their mark in the community. Is that, and I'm sure that that's conscious behind the board and you, but often, you know, many people say that, you know, we're going to bring young people and we want to engage them and have them be involved, but it doesn't happen. It's just like lip service. But you made a conscious effort and it's happened. How does that feel when you see one of your kidlets become staff member or go out into the world and they're doing the work oh it's it's absolutely incredible i mean right now out of a staff of 45 we now have you know i haven't caught i haven't counted it recently but we now have uh, about at least 25 to 30 percent of that staff now are young people who at one point or another have received services uh, through the ruth ellis center and we've got um, eight trans individuals on staff now, either full or, or part-time. And, and so the more and more and more, the staff here is reflecting the lived experience of the community, which is, again, I think, a part of its legacy. And, and I think it's one of the critical turning points that we really need to make as an organization because that really wasn't true when I got here. And one of the things that we've done just in the last year to really underscore that is that what was our human resources position in the organization um, hired a really talented um, young man to, to run what we're now calling talent development. 
Um, and we're looking at everything that we do in terms from the point of recruiting for positions, uh, bringing people on board, intentionally developing them, looking at this as a talent development pipeline that we really want not only for young people served, but even for young people, whether with lived experience or not, who come to work here. We want their experience here to be a really intentional development of them to be able to go on in the world and work either for other nonprofits who want to do a better job serving LGBTQ young people or into the private sector and into corporations. And so we're really envisioning um, one of the next deepening of, of our work in the next two years is to really become very, very intentional in that development pipeline and inviting and providing opportunities for young people served as well as staff to be able to move through that and really benefit it. Because we really, in uh, 2019, the board adopted a new uh, vision and mission statement. And the mission state, the vision statement now is we envision a world where LGBTQ young people are safe and supported no matter where they go. Um, again, we, we like to believe is another aspect of Ruth's legacy that we're, it's not just about providing a place-based service buried in Highland Park in southeast Michigan, but it is young, these young people deserve to be received and treated well wherever it's convenient for them to show up and wherever they want to go um, to either participate or you know, fill a need, whatever, that, that they're received and treated well and treated with, with respect and dignity. And so we're really broadening our view beyond just one place-based effort and doing a lot of work with systems that we're working with, um, the Detroit Continuum of Care Shelter System and Child Welfare across the state of Michigan and juvenile justice and community mental health to really help um, a broad base of organizations provide safety and well-being uh, for young people wherever they may want to show up. You know, have, as part of that also, that mission and vision, is to make sure that young people, their voice, not just their voice, but their voice from them has a seat at the table. And, you know, I mean, everyone's not going to say, I us, but, you know, I still see organizations who want to plan programs, but don't make a place for young people to sit at that table and talk about this world, which is going to be theirs. It's going to be different than what we've, we've grown up with. Right. Yeah, and, and two elements of, of that is, uh, so the Youth Advisory Board is growing really, really strong and is now one of the active decision-making groups. We've, we've eliminated um, sort of a leadership level, closed door, small group of people making all the decisions that with Alice, we've eliminated that and gone to a, a structure where the Youth Advisory Board is one of three decision-making groups who proposes programs, has to review the decisions that are made here, weigh in, uh, play a role, in, uh, in that whole process because, again, you know, equitable access to resources means that the young people themselves, you know, deserve mm -hmm. 
access to the resources and the learning and the teaching and the growth and development that the organization has. And in that same vein, then, the new mission statement for the organization is that our mission is to create opportunities with LGBTQ young people to build their vision of a positive future. So even the mission statement now has been totally rewritten. We're no longer labeling young people as homeless or at risk. Mm -hmm. We're really looking at the value that they bring, the potential that's in them. And the mission statement itself is really focused on we're, we're just here to help them do what they want to do. And, and one of the things we recognize is that, unfortunately, because of the lived experience of many of the young people who come here, they don't have much hope for the future. And they have difficulty seeing what's possible for them. Um, so part, part of our role is, is to really, it is that creating opportunities for young people to see something different for themselves in the future and help them set goals and reach them. That's, that's the core of everything we do here. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, well, we're going to take our first quick break, and we're going to talk about 2020, so we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm talking with Jerry Peterson, the Executive Director of the Ruth Ellis Center. So, Jerry, 2020. I mean, you can't talk about 2020 without talking about COVID. And, you know, I recall in talking to you, one time we were talking about young people, and you said that many of them didn't consider themselves homeless although in the traditional places others would, because you said, like, some of them, they say, well, they're couch surfing or whatever, so they didn't see themselves like that. When COVID hit, and I know that young, many young people, they came to the Ruth Ellis Center, that was their place to relate, to hang out with their friends, to be there. And how did the center pivot to keep young people safe, but also to make sure that they had what they needed. Yeah, so it, it, it was a challenge for us as well as any other nonprofit. I think one of the keys was that the community, I want to give, give credit to the community itself because okay. this, um, this is an incredibly resilient and creative community of young people who take care of each other. And that is one of the fundamental blessings in their lives. Um, they rely on each other more than they rely on us. 
but we are here, again, to help provide resources that they may see and need. So one of the first things that happened um, when things started to shut down is that uh, young people would say, you know, how is this different from any other day of my life? How is mm. the risk of this invisible virus, how am I more at risk now than I was yesterday with all of the challenges and all the oppressions that I face in my life? How is this any different? Um, and I have any valid answer to that. Because mm -hmm. for them, they've been living their lives for years, some for decades, in an environment where they are accustomed to high levels of risk every single day. So, um, so they struggled with some of our decisions to comply with the governor's orders to shut down. Um, and yet the community itself still stayed together and supported one another. And I think, oddly enough, that the fact that they are such an isolated community may well have become a protective factor against the pandemic because we've not seen huge numbers of young people that we know who are contracting the virus or have been really negatively affected. So while, while being so isolated under normal circumstances is a real detriment and I think has really detrimental effects in people's lives, in this case, it may well be one of the saving factors for them. So listening to them, then what, how we pivoted in, into that was, number one, um, we, are con we have stayed open and continued to provide food services twice a week, two days a week, and most of that is delivery. So young people could come and pick up, practice social distancing, but we just started being, we had a team of pe staff people who rotated and would come in. And as requests for food came in, we'd put together food boxes and they'd be delivered. And we're still doing that, and we'll continue to do that on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays every week um, until it's e easier and safer for young people to return. Um, but then we, put, we did push the envelope, and several months ago, basically in September, we did start doing some small in-person meetings and gatherings where there are some small groups who come together and meet between six, six and ten people. And on Wednesdays, we are we're practicing social distancing, but we are still inviting the community to come in now since September every Wednesday. Um, we don't serve food here anymore, but if we have hot food available, it's packaged and they can prepackaged and they can take it with them. So we've done everything we can to stay within the basic guidelines of safety and yet still provide connection and opportunity for people to be together and be as safe as we can. Um, groups did go virtual for a number of months um, where there were young people who really wanted to be engaged but didn't have access to the technology. We, provide, we had some grants and donations that came in to expand access to technology so that young people could participate. Um, and our behavioral health services went almost entirely virtual, but we still had people going out in the community and doing home visits. So mm. it, it really has been a frontline organization where we have really 
seeing it important that where where there's crisis or where there's real challenges, that you still need some human interaction and and a human presence. And again, that that's what Ruth would do. That's what mm-hmm. Ruth would do. So we have done everything we can to maintain both safety of staff, safety of young people, but but really continue to to build on that connection to the extent that we can. And you know, Kathy Griffin at at the Center for Lesbian and Queer Women and Girls has been really, really doing a great job with that and has kept people going and committed virtually and has had a number of events and even some in-person events here in the fall. So across Mm -hmm. the organization, we're doing everything we can to to stay connected. Now, you know, when you hear the governor gave out her guidelines and when you hear people talk about, they talk a lot about essential workers, of course, healthcare professionals. They talk about, you know, people in the community needing food, but you don't hear them talking about organizations like Rufus and the communities that they serve. Have you had any access to someone to to bring that up? Like the reality is like, no, you can't just sit down and, and say, hey, you guys are on your own. You know, you have a commitment that's part of your mission, it's part of your vision, it's who you are. Have you had any conversations on that level, like with those who are making these decisions about how to shut down, how many people can be together, et cetera? Well, we haven't had a direct impact, but we have had support from the state. Um, The Michigan Department of Health and Human Services does actually acknowledge Ruth Ellis Center and all centers that are serving people experiencing homelessness and and other ongoing challenges to to stable living as essential workers. So while that never comes out in the media, it's never stated that way, I think the media does not uh, promote it or perhaps even realize it. The reality is we are recognized by the state as as an organization that provides essential services. Um, As a matter of fact, all of our staff as of this week uh, as essential service providers are eligible in the Detroit Public Health Department to, to get the, the COVID-19 vaccine if they so choose. And so mm-hmm. we, have, we have probably 15 people uh, scheduled to get the vaccine through the city of Detroit Public Health Department uh, this week and next. And, and I'm grateful to the state, and they've provided free PPE and so we really have been been supported and acknowledged in this work in a, in a wide variety of ways, privately, even though it doesn't show up that way so much publicly. Mm-hmm. So I think there is more recognition in the system than may show up in the media. Mm-hmm. Now, I know a lot of organizations across the country, I mean, this has caused them to shutter their doors. Like they can't, donations are down, volunteers can't come. Um, I was talking to someone in Chicago who was like, you know, well, they could do certain things virtually, but it really cut into their programming. But Ruth Ellis, you know, has not shuttered, but I'm sure you have had some impact on that. Has it, you know, your volunteers, your donations, have you seen like a downturn during COVID? We have not. We actually saw an increase. Wow, that's awesome. And 
<laughs> you, know, I, you know, and I say that again very, very humbly. I mean, it, I, I really believe it's driven by people recognizing mm-hmm. the importance of the people that we're here to serve. But no, we've actually seen, seen an increase. Now, we don't have any volunteers, you know, coming in providing direct services, but, um, but there have been a number of new funding sources, new donors, some national groups have raised money for us this year. Mm-hmm. Um, as a result of of the people knowing about us in different parts of the country. So there have just been an incredible number of blessings this year. There truly have. Well, you have a great development staff because I know there's someone whose name I didn't recognize, and I started getting emails from it, but it wasn't just like, just like, give us money, give us money, but it was like telling the story about what was going on and, you know, we need your support. And that is so crucial to have not just a development department that goes out and says, give us some money, but able to tell this story. Um, I know you have – how big is your development staff? And do you talk about that when you got – when, you know, a thinking like, okay, um, we're going into this, this is what we're going to need, and how do we do this act? Have you have a – do you work like in concert a lot with the development department? Um, I do. So right now uh, there are three positions in the development department. One of them is actually open right now. We're searching. Um, and the person you're talking about is Nazarena, who joined us about a year ago. That's it. And um, mm-hmm. Nazarena brings just this this beautiful <laughs> – depth of insight and understanding and she's the senior development associate and I think we're hopeful um, that she'll be with the organization a long time and we'll be taking over development here um, at some point as you know Mark uh, makes other choices there's nothing uh, in the immediate future there but but mm-hmm. Nazarena has this wonderfully beautifully a grounded sense of connecting with young people, connecting with stories, reaching out, and just really valuing um, everybody's lived experience and finding ways to connect that. And and I I love the the spirit and the skill that she has has brought to the organization. And yeah, and the key that we keep going to is that we a will not raise money on on the backs and the trauma of the young people mm. that we serve. That kind mm-hmm. of fundraising is something that we simply refuse to do here. Um, it's just not, it's just not appropriate. So we just simply humbly, openly, as we have young people, if they're willing for their stories to be told, we use their voice to tell those stories. Um, Otherwise, it's just saying, hey, you know, with, with gratitude, this is what we receive, this is what's happening, and this is what young people are asking for. And if you can help us, great. Um, I, I think underlying that is that we have a real belief here at Ruth Ellis Center in, in abundance versus scarcity. And I think that mm. that's part of what made a big difference, even especially in 2020, it's been a hallmark of, of ours for the time that I've been here, but it's definitely during 2020 that even, even in, in those times, I, we are big believers that there, there is enough resources to go around and that people 
should that I don't want to compete for people's money. I don't want to compete for people's attention. There's so many good and important uh, causes out there that if you're if you're inspired by what's happening here, then we trust that you'll make a donation and that collectively those donations will meet our needs. And that's exactly what happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that belief in abundance also, I mean, part of it like to me comes from the young people. Like when we were talking earlier how like some of them didn't see that they were homeless. Like there was a thing, in fact, I talked to a young woman who's not from Utah, but who was in, in Texas and she was like, that sense of community amongst the young people where she knew that she was out and someone said, I've got a couch. And so that, that part line, right. it's there. There's that, it's not that abundance and that caring for each other. So that in part by working with, you know, serving this community, it has helped you learn more about community. Right. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely, mm-hmm. and that and that's why I say you know it it is the, it is a an incredible community. Not only supporters of the young people, but the young people themselves that have made all this happen. It's 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 the fruit. It, it's just mm-hmm. the fruit of a of a belief that collectively we can generate something that doesn't exist without the community. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you, you, you've announced the new projects, but um, a little bit more about um, the uh, Kofi Adoma House and then the, mm-hmm. your other programs. Could you tell me, a, I know that there's always been housing, transitional housing that you've had for young people. Um, I know you have a second story program, and then now you have a center for lesbian women and girls. What right. other what are your current programs? So current programs are it, it, it is the Center for Queer Women and Girls, and I talk a little bit more about that in a minute. There is then uh, our full behavioral health program in partnership with Henry Ford Health System. So we have okay. so young people get fully integrated primary health care along with access to high quality counseling services and substance use disorder treatment. Um, Then we have, so the drop-in includes street outreach. So we're still continuing to to do outreach services. We have case management available for young people who have life needs and they're ready to work hard and set goals and want some support in that. Uh, There are support groups. There's the Youth Advisory Board. Um, And then we still have our family engagement programs, family preservation programs, where we are providing a variety of services to families who have LGBTQ children um, who are either out or coming out or, you know, you know, expressing trans identity or gender nonconforming identity, and they're struggling over the identity of their child. Mm-hmm. Because we really believe that one of, one of the ways of addressing homelessness is that we've got to go upstream and help families stay together before a child get, runs away, gets kicked out, or ends up in child welfare or juvenile justice. So, uh, so those programs are still running. But one of the things that has been a historic miss <laughs> at Ruth Ellis Center, and there are, I think, two main reasons for that, but is actually serving 
lesbian and queer women and girls that um, partly because the the initial array of services and focus on homelessness pulled in a group of people who primarily identified either as transgender or as as gay or bisexual um, MSM and mm-hmm. And as everything really became targeted and focused on them, as women came in, they didn't find much room for themselves, uh, for, for their identities. Or, and there weren't enough women at any given time often to, to really form groups or form an identity. And so when uh, John Kavanaugh gifted his home to the Ruth Ellison and Actually, John is the person who said, you do what you want, but I would like that house to be named after, after Kofi Adama. And, mm-hmm. which was just, and we're just like, <laughs> then it's done. It's done. Oh, yeah. Kofi oh, yeah. being one of the, uh, one of the co-founders of, of the center. I mean, it was just absolutely perfect. And because one of the things we realized, wow, so to have a new facility, a new place, a home that is separate, it's new, it's separate from anything that's gone before, we have an opportunity to create something and to create a safe, a safe place that's, that can be totally built and identified with this group of deserving people that we've not, not bit, done a good job providing safety and, and good support for in the past. And uh, so it, it's grown as over 100 women engaged uh, with, with Kathy Griffin at this point and in a wide variety of ways. And there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. It's an intergenerational group. Um, and, and people just love the house. So we are incredibly grateful to, to John and to Pamela Alexander. Pamela was the driving force uh, to get this started, and we miss her. That was another part of 2020 is that Pamela retired um, as deputy director and is no longer here on staff. But uh, I'm, I'm really, really excited to see the energy and, and the quality of work that's being provided there. Because uh, again, here's, here's Ruth and something that was really sorely lacking in the organization for a long time. And you know, there's also that thing, not only that there's that intergenerational, but there's that historical, you know, because here John Kavanaugh had been active in the community for a long time, and many people might not have known him, but here he donated the house, um, wanted it named after Dr. Kofi, who not only had been very close with Ruth Ellis, but had been one of the co-founders of the Ruth Ellis Center, who had served on the board for many, many years to keep the center going, Mm -hmm. and who's still there. So there's that intergenerational, but there's also that history of what this, what this center, what the people who made this center, what it's about, this foundation, you know, that even in growth, it's built on these strong cornerstones. Which has been our greatest blessing. And I don't know if, even if you know, Michelle, but Dr. Kofi is actually full-time on staff with us now also. Well, I was, um, I was leading up into that, you know, how here someone who has now brought her skills. So if you want to, if you can tell us about what, you know, which is, again, here's someone who many people would say, well, Kofi, you know, you've done enough. 
sit down. But here she is bringing her skills, and I'm going to tell you, as my, my auntie would say, she sounds like she's about as happy as a pig in being there bringing her skills <laughs> to, the, to, to, to the sister. So, so what is Dr. Kofi doing? So she's the behavioral health lead. So she's the person mm-hmm. who is providing the, the day-to-day supervision and oversight of all of the people on staff who are providing uh, mental health services to the young people. So her lived her own personal lived experience as well okay. as her knowledge of the center and the young people who have come and gone over the years, it, uh, her experience of Ruth, she is the one who is shaping the lived experience of young people as they come for services in the behavioral health department, which I think is just one of the most beautiful things that could happen here. I mean, really, it is. Like I said, it's like it's like that history. It's a living history. It's that that it's the lifeblood. People who are there. This is not just a job. You know, this is like who you are. I mean, from the top down, from the board on. And I think that that's just like really fantastic. Well, before we talk about, I want to take a break, and then I want to talk about these three new projects you've got coming up. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Now, okay, I mean, like I told you, I did a, I had a spirit shift at the end of 2020 to look at all of the great things that are happening. And one of the great things that came out of 2020 was Rufalo Center announced three new projects. They're not all happening at once, but, but they're pretty huge, pretty impressive, and continue the work. Can you tell us about your three new projects coming up? <laughs> yeah, I can hardly believe they're all coming together at, at the same time, um, but but they really do complement each other. So I'll I'll start the with like, the Rec Center, you know? mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the Ruth Ellis at Claremont Center, which mm-hmm. is a four-story mixed-use um, permanent supportive housing project that we broke ground on back in uh, back in November and is intended, we'll see how the schedule goes with COVID, but is intended to open uh, Janu- with next January, so a mm-hmm. year from now. Wow. Or certainly within the first quarter of 2021. And that's another place where the that project, the inception of that project started in January of 2015, so six years ago, 
I got a call from Kate Levin Markell at McGregor Fund. Um, and she had heard, soon after I got here, she had heard me talk about a housing program specifically for LGBTQ youth. And she called me in that January and said, have you been able to make any progress? And I said, no. And she said, well, why not? Is it because you don't have any resources or capacity to plan it? And I said, bingo, that's it. And she said, well, what if I could think of a way to give you two consultants who could do the pre-planning and the focus group work and so on would you take it? And I'm like, absolutely. So that mm-hmm. birthed the process now that has been six years in the making to groundbreaking where uh, we have partnered with a nonprofit developer out of Chicago named Full Circle Communities. And, and we've got, got this partnership to build a permanent supportive housing project that is targeted to LGBTQ youth 18 to 25 experiencing chronic homelessness. And that's one of the cases, again, where we talk about how, how is the work here shaped by the young people themselves and their lived experience. The first place, that, the first thing that, that I felt was critical in the way that this project took shape was that we really need to look at our trans, trans women, black and brown trans women and their lived experience and how they view housing and what kind of housing they would want. Because my belief was if we could build something that would really serve and support their community, um, that it would also work for everybody else. But mm-hmm. rarely are, are they given preference to really help shape something. So um, the, the lived network of community support that they live by has actually been planned into the literal design and built space of the building. The units are relatively small, so it provides safe housing for individuals, but there are large gathering spaces and kitchens and, and living rooms and gathering spaces to really support uh, family togetherness and connection and that social network that, that they live by. Um, so there is... Uh, so I always have to say that it, be, being permanent supportive housing, this is a project where we cannot discriminate or limit to LGBTQ young people, but we're working in partnership with the continual care who will always be seeking to, see, to make the best possible referral for someone experiencing homelessness to, to the best permanent supportive housing community for them. And mm-hmm. so, and there will be things like covenants that people need to sign that would be where people will be held accountable for creating safety for LGBTQ young people, whether or not that is their personal identity, and just creating safety and, and this vibrant new space. That space will also include a youth entrepreneurial project, so, and another health center in partnership with Henry Ford Health System that will have no upper age limit. Um, so we will have a second integrated health center there, um, a youth entrepreneurial project in, in food service, potentially a pharmacy, um, and also the Ruth Ellis Institute, which is the training consulting arm of, of Ruth Ellis, will also be housed there at, at that site. So we're very excited 
you know, people have always seen Ruth Ellis as a shelter, uh, but mm-hmm. this, is, this is one of the first, well, really the first major foray into providing housing. Now, while it's called permanent supportive housing, we think of it as non-time limited housing. Here's what we mean by that. Young people who have experienced the layers of trauma and rejection and oppression that young people here have experienced, getting into a short-term program like 12 or 18 months of transitional living is not enough to help them really stabilize their lives, deal with their trauma triggers, and to be able to be successful in market-rate housing. They need longer than that. Mm-hmm. So, which is why we went to permanent supportive housing to take that time limit off. But we really believe that most 60 to 70% of young people who move into the project within three to five years will be ready and successful in market rate housing and they'll move out and other people can move in. Some people will age in place because that really will be the best, safest, uh, most welcoming place for them potentially throughout their lifespan. So gradually over time, um, Ruth Ellis Center will be serving people across the lifespan. And, uh, and not with the upper age, current upper age limit of, of 30. So that's one arena that, uh, that's really exciting. Then two other housing programs we've been funded mm-hmm. uh, through the city of Detroit for rapid rehousing for young people uh, up to age uh, 22. So, and the belief is that there, there are young people who end up you know, through all, whether through violence, uh, poverty, through all kinds of reasons, end up without stable housing. But they do, they do have some successful work history. They do have a social support network. So the more quickly we can get them back into housing and help stabilizing that, that housing over the course of a year, the more likely they are to be able to, to It'll make a transition and be successful in maintaining that housing into the future. So, uh, so that's a, a new housing and half million dollars uh, to to work on building that project and the staffing for it. Mm-hmm. And the other one is really amazing in terms of coming through in the Trump era is um, <laughs> another half million dollars from the Department of Justice, the Federal Department wow. of Justice specifically mm-hmm. to serve trans women of color who are experiencing trafficking and other mm-hmm. forms of, of oppression in relationship to sex work. And, um, and we were very clear who we were going to serve and what we were doing and that we have a radical harm reduction approach. We were very clear because I, I'm not going to take federal money on false pretenses. And, mm-hmm. and we figured if they don't want to fund it, they won't fund it. And lo and behold, they mm-hmm. do and uh, so, so that's um, a half million dollars over, uh, that's over three years, um, specifically to really work at, with the trans community, particularly trans women, primarily trans women of color and trans men, um, in terms of really working toward housing stability for them in, in market rate housing. So we, again, we are just incredibly grateful to be able to provide uh, in one year to be launching this full array of uh, housing supports. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. I mean, that, that, I mean, that is just like, and the housing part is like really so important. 
I mean, especially like how you're talking about the housing on Claremont, and I know that there's other cities that have things, and I've talked to people who are like um, couch surfing or whatever have been put out or have been in or relationships that weren't good, you know, just to have a roof over their head. And to having that place that was theirs that helped them have responsibilities to, um, like I know one young woman who's in New York and she was saying how she spent time in a, in a similar place and that prepared her not only to finish school, to get a job, to then she got her own place. She graduated right. to her own place and how right. wonderful that was. I mean, how that great that made her feel. And, you know, and also to be in community with other people, she said, who were just like hers, where she didn't have to be undercover or whatever. She she lived, she learned from each other. She, they shared things. And to have that here in Detroit, I mean, that is just, like, really so exciting. Would you Were you aware that all three were going to come together kind of, sort of, <laughs> at at the same time. I, I wish I could say it was by design and we knew exactly what we were doing. It's, it's another one of those things, you know, it's, it's, it's the grace of abundance. It's, it's the mm-hmm. grace of things just beginning to work together and leading, you know, opportunities come and sometimes we worry about capacity. Can we really do this? But um, we just keep pushing forward and saying, well, uh, we won't know if we don't try. And mm-hmm. uh, so we, there, there are just so many blessings. But I really believe in, in, a, in a spiritual sense, in addition to abundance, I personally am just a really big believer that the universe, I, I believe in a sort of a creation-centered spirituality where the universe longs and desires every single moment of our existence to bring forth good things. Mm-hmm. But, and is constantly seeking for opportunities to bring it forth. And, and um, so I really have felt that my primary job has been to create opportunities for good to come forward. And, um, and, and to wherever we see the potential for something new and good to happen, I, I believe that, that the universe, uh, God, however, however you understand her, uh, is longs to do good things for people who deserve it. And so I, I really attribute all of the things that are happening to, to just the goodness that these young people deserve. Mm-hmm. Joyful moment when you told, because I'm sure that you had a moment before you made the big press announcement that you told the young people about, particularly the Ruth Ellis on Claremont. What was their reaction when you told them, even in, during the process, about what the vision was, and then? See, having them watch it grow and up to the groundbreaking. What was that joyful, joyfulness about like? Well, the fact that it took six years meant that it was hard <laughs> for the joyfulness to stay alive through the process, to be honest. If you need something now and you sit around and wait six years, 
um, uh-huh. it, it, it's been hard, but, but they've been tenacious. And, uh, but I will say, especially among the, the black and brown trans women who were part uh-huh. of the early planning, who told us what they wanted and the fact that we've honored it and what is being built is actually, to- they see it being totally rooted in everything that they shaped. I mean, there, there's this sense of, of pride and, and absolute amazement that this can come together and, and actually happen. And there's going to be a big mural of Ruth on, on the outside of that building. So she, and when you drive from, uh, from Ferndale downtown and you drive past that area, you're going to see up above, you know, kind of, up against the sky, you're gonna you're gonna see a, a mural of a roof on that building, and mm-hmm. and her presence just in in this whole project is is amazing. You know, visibility is so important, and particularly for our trans brothers and sisters. Unfortunately, often their visibility comes about when you hear someone has been murdered. You know. Or there's people who think that... Which several people, that's happened in the last week now, so it's just... Right, right. Or there's other people, I mean, and I have worked in in areas to where they assume that, you know, if they're they're up to no good, these trans kids, you know, or that they're doing something wrong that they don't really know what they want to be, they're just confused. How important is this visibility to that conversation that not only trans kids, but our LGBT youth, that the, the challenges that they have, the needs that they have, by seeing it and putting it in something, our discussion point. We're building mm-hmm. housing. Oh, who are you building housing for? We're building it into the, how important is that visibility? Right. And just just acknowledging their presence and their value and their worth and you know uh-huh. that I, you know I, I they deserve more than this society has been willing to give and uh-huh. so to to create op, uh, you know, to create opportunities and bring together resources where they can experience what they deserve is just the greatest privilege uh-huh. in life. Now, you said that um, the housing is claimed 18 to 25. Why will they... Well, that's where the target, that's what the target is. But again, we, we have, the whole project has to function by fair housing laws. So it mm-hmm. is it's not limited to that. Um, okay. But we just want to make sure that we're, we're increasing resources for, for that, that population. Because in the past, permanent supportive housing has been pretty much reserved only for the chronically homeless who are much older mm-hmm. than that. And the mm-hmm. system has required, the proof that they require for homelessness has, has required uh, people to be literally down and out for a much longer period of time. What we're working at here is to acknowledge the trauma and oppression that they that these young people have experienced in addition to their struggle with housing to really look at assessing their situation and understanding that they need and deserve this type of housing so that they can um, really stabilize their lives and, and be able to move forward. So, but 
we we the project will function according to fair housing laws. So if we're re- if a straight person who's 45 is referred to us, and they want to live in community with the folks who are there, and they abide by the rules, um, and otherwise they qualify for permanent supportive housing through the Detroit Continuum of Care, then they will become a resident at at Rec mm-hmm. Center. So it will mm-hmm. be a diverse uh, group of folks. So, you know, it's, it's amazing. What's so amazing to me and what, what shows how time changes, because I know many, many moons ago I had been involved with, like, affordable housing, and there was money for SROs, but they were for men, indigent men. And then to sort of, like, expand that to say, well, women can be homeless too. And then about women with children, you know. I mean, and I can recall working at a place where we might be able to find a bed for a man but a woman with her kids was sleeping on a gym floor. And so to see how it has evolved and to where here you're doing this, to including this in, these are people who need homes. Everyone should, mm-hmm. it's a fundamental human right to have a right. safe place Absolutely. to live. And, you know, and like we always say, we're not looking for special rights. So we're looking for fundamental human rights. So I think that that is just like, amazing and as you start you watch and you see it now these are really great things and we talk about visibility and all like that has there been any pushback because this is i mean we are well this is we we are ending the era of trump and i'll tell you i'm surprised you got the money from there because that's not how they fit <laughs> you know that's not mm-hmm. they, they haven't been warm and fuzzy has there been any pushback and are you anticipating more pathways to funding, to support for the Ruth Ellis community under this new administration? Well, um, we have not gotten much mm-hmm. pushback. You know, we, when, when the project was first announced to the neighborhood that the building is being constructed in, there were challenges, but it was the typical kind of thing. There were attitudes about permanent supportive housing. People in that neighborhood had friends in other neighborhoods where there was a permanent supportive housing project, and they didn't like the way that it was managed, and so they heard really negative things about permanent supportive housing. Um, so some people felt bad, you know, bad about that. Some people felt like, oh, it's just going to be a homeless shelter, and people are going to be in and out and hanging out. So we had to, you know, so there were just, it's a lot of misconceptions Mm -hmm. about the nature of the project that we had to keep working through. Um, But we've built a good relationship with the neighborhood this year while we're building the project. We're going to be with support from the Kresge uh, Foundation. We are actually providing a pool of funds to a group of neighborhood residents immediately surrounding the building to help them do some things that they really want to do in their neighborhood. And we know that safety is really about building relationships, not just within the building, but but in the neighborhood as a whole. The more we know and understand each other, the more the fear goes away. And so mm-hmm. I feel like we're, we're really at a good place with na- the neighborhood. But otherwise, we've had great support from um, the city of Detroit who helped support the process. The, the project um, McGregor Fund, as I mentioned, 
you know, was part of the inception of the concept, and now uh, they've given us a substantial two-year grant to uh, to set up all of the supportive services that will be available to young people as they move into the building. So we, again, have been really blessed and um, not a lot of resistance. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, an, it's the North End, and the North End is a, a very, I mean, it's, it's a perfect place because the North End is a very resilient neighborhood. There's a lot of people who are doing community gardening, who are small entrepreneurs, who are really even community activists in there. So, I mean, it's like a perfect place. And Rufus from the North End, again, you know, it's like right. keeping it all in the Right, backyard. exactly. And, you know, and that's where, actually, we chose that neighborhood based on the young people because that's the part of the city that, that they either grew up in or are most familiar with. And so that's where they felt the safest. And so that's... Uh, why we worked hard with the city of Detroit to to locate a property in that in that neighborhood. Oh, Technically, the property it's in what's called Piety Hill, which is uh, adjacent to to North End, because um, we're east of Woodward, and that's Piety Hill. North End is is west of Woodward, and mm-hmm. uh, so the Piety Hill neighborhood is is kind of starting to, which I also frankly find kind of interesting that that we're building this project on piety hill i uh, <laughs> I, I find that a little amusing <laughs> uh, yeah. well you know it is piety is as you de- define it you know? and i think it's yes, a right. very pious exactly. project <laughs> exactly <laughs> So, I mean, we're in a new year. Hopefully, you you know, the vaccine is coming. Um, will young people, as they, as they roll it out more, are you, well, like the Henry Ford Center, that like there, do you think that at the health center you'll be able to participate in the vaccination of people there? Are you Well, ab- absolutely that? we will. And, and in fact, so... So as a part of the fact that we've been, we are deemed an, an essential service. So the staff were included in what's called uh, phase 1B of, mm-hmm. of the vaccine rollout. The young people we serve will be included either in phase 1C or 2. That hasn't been fully determined yet. Uh, mm-hmm. But we are in conversation with both Henry Ford and and public health department um, okay. to make the vaccine available to to mm-hmm. young people when when that phase when the appropriate phase opens up. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great! That's great. Oh, Jerry, I'm telling you. I mean, you've had. I'm looking forward to to 2021 to seeing these things happen. You know, I'm gonna. Next time I, I go out, <laughs> I'm going to drive by Piety Hill so I can look at it. And I'm going to tell you, my mother grew up on the north end, and they were east of Woodard, and they said that was the north end, you know. <laughs> I know, I know. I see, and, and that's what's interesting. And, and so I think it's partly people trying to regain, some, going back and regaining some of the original history of things mm-hmm. that maybe got lost along the way. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was funny because that was one of the things when my mother met Ruth Ellis that they talked about was the North End, and you know, which is always will stick in my mind. 
them sitting up there laughing about the days on the North End and what it had been like. But one of the things that they talked about it being about was being about that sense of community. You know, they were mm-hmm. all in there. If one person was hung- was hungry and the other person had some food, they'd slice that ham a little thinner, they'd add another plate, you know, one person making sure that another one had clothes, you know, no one, that, that making sure that peace, someone had a roof over their head, some place to sleep, not on the street, and, and that caring and looking, about each, looking after each other. And that tradition is going on through the Roof Ellis Center. And, you know, hey, you might have come from California, but you're a Detroiter now. <laughs> I am, and I love it. I love it, I love it. I am not leaving. Well, good, good. That's no, good. I am, Carrie, it has been a joy for me to talk to you, a great way to kick off 2021 because I've been feeling really good about it. This news that you have shared with me has continued that we will get through all of this together. And I thank you we for the will. work that you're doing, you know. Yes, sir. Now, uh, and and I thank you for the ways that, because you give to this community so much, Michelle, and, and mm-hmm. we love you and, and appreciate all of your energy and drive and creativity as well. And so, and, and just in case anyone, you know, you said you hadn't suffered, but in case anyone is still looking to contribute and be a part of it, the doors are still open and the phones are being answered, right? Absolutely. They are. There's someone available in the phone booth. Yeah, we're, we are here. We are here. That's right. You're here and you're here to stay. Well, Jerry, again, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you sometime soon, even if it's from six, six feet away and us each wearing a mask. Good blessing. But I am. Yes. But, you know, it's good to hear your voice. <laughs> All right. Be well. Be well, Michelle. Okay, Jerry. I'll talk to you real soon. I want to thank our guest, the Executive Director of the Roof Ellis Center, Jerry Peterson. While many nonprofits are cutting back on services and, in some instances, closing their doors, the Roof Ellis Center is pushing through the pandemic and expanding services. It recently announced three new programs, the REC at Claremont for long-term housing support in Detroit's North End, and the Rapid Rehousing Project and Kelly Stowe Project. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can support the podcast by becoming a sponsor of Collections by Michelle Brown on Patreon.com. You can listen to this or past episodes of a show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.